following talk is from St. Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. Jonathan, thank you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Good morning, all. Uh, Thank you so much, Jonathan. Keep that with you, but also there's some handouts on the end, so people sitting on the ends, pull them out, and um, hopefully there's, there should be enough to go around. Um, people at the back, there might be, um, we might need to ha- uh, send some further back, because uh, I think there's a new back row, uh, and so get Bibles back there as well. If you like jotting down notes, uh, you can jot down things uh, there. So, as Simon says, uh, we are today um, restarting our series on the gathering. Uh, We've had four times together thinking about uh, why we do what we do when we gather together. We've got two more uh, to do. What we've looked at before Easter is why do we gather on a Sunday at all? Uh, We thought about that. Uh, We thought about uh, the way we shape our Sundays and our, our services. We thought about the place of God's Word for us, and uh, we've thought about our words to God, uh, our prayers to God. And we've spoken of this, that uh, we've spoken of the idea that quite possibly the most significant, I realize this is a big thing to say, but the most significant thing quite possibly we will ever do in our lives is to faithfully go to a local church week in, week out. Uh, It is an enormously significant thing that we do, being part of a local church and gathering together week in, week out. And so it's good to spend a bit of time thinking about why we do what we do. And one of the things uh, we've spoken about, and I so hope our gatherings do, is they sort of are a a reset button for us, a spiritual reset button. If we've had a tough week, if we're coming discouraged, uh, if we're coming feeling bruised, if we're coming feeling spiritually dry, well, I hope that we come and that we are encouraged and rebuilt and renewed in our Christian faith to go out to live another week. Uh, It's a little bit like um, the AA coming to help you. Uh, Last week, we managed to get a flat tire on our way back from holiday. And uh, the tyre was in a mess. Uh, To be honest, the car wasn't in great shape. And uh, wonderfully, we phoned up the AA, and the AA came, and this amazing person 
uh, just spent an hour with us and put everything back in the right place again. Uh, I'm not brilliant on cars. This person really was. And uh, the tyre was mended and uh, the car was uh, back in great shape. And then off we were ready to go. And that's what our gatherings are to do for us spiritually. Uh, they're to be the spiritual equivalent of the AA. Uh, they're to be here to encourage us, to, to reset us, to keep us going in the Christian life. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens through something we've called, uh, and Christians have called for centuries, the means of grace. The means of grace. Just ordinary things that we do week by week by week. Yet through them, God renews us and builds us up and strengthens us in faith. Ordinary things such as one another, gathering with other Christians, and just the encouragement of having tea and coffee with one another, and singing together, and being part of something uh, with other people. Uh, ordinary things such as his word, the Bible, and yet through this, he speaks to us. Ordinary things such as prayer, uh, singing, and also what we're particularly thinking about this week, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, uh, Augustine called baptism and the Lord's Supper visible words, and that's the title we've given for this. And these are two things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that Jesus specifically gave us as Christians to do. So, um, Matthew 28, 19, you'll see it on your handout. Jesus said this to his disciples, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Explicitly commanding us to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the reading we've just had read. Uh, Jesus said these words, This is my body, which is for you, speaking at the Last Supper with his disciples. This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Jesus explicitly telling us to do this, something we're going to do later on in this service, is to share bread and wine together. So Jesus has given us these two visible words. And we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about why he did that, why it's such a good idea, and why it's important for us. Uh, we're going to do it under three headings, signs and seals, and then we'll spend some time looking at baptism, and then we'll spend a bit of time looking at the Lord's Supper. So firstly, the whole idea of just signs and seals. Uh, it's, it's worth thinking just a little bit about... Uh, the whole nature of signs and symbols. Uh, we actually use them all the time. Uh, taking things and investing them with meaning. So one example could be a flag. Think of a flag. Uh, what is a flag? I mean, a flag is just a piece of cloth, isn't it? And yet, um, with a certain pattern on it, and uh, with it being sort of commissioned by a nation. It can represent a whole uh, nation, a flag. Think of the Union Jack. And it has a power to it. Even though it's just a piece of cloth fluttering in the wind, there is a power to that 
that's kind of been sort of invested in it. And if you want to think about the power of it, think about what, what, what sort of impact does it have on you when you see the flag of your country being burnt, for example. That has an impact, doesn't it? It's just a piece of cloth. But it's because it's a symbol that represents something. It's been invested with meaning. Uh, another way of thinking about it, maybe, uh, is um, the way in which um, sometimes things have a particular uh, significance in a certain context. We, we uh, give symbols a particular uh, significance in, a, in the right context with the right words. So uh, think of a medal like this. Uh, this is a perfectly good medal that you can just buy in any sports shop or on Amazon or something like that. And if you just bought this medal uh, for yourself, that would kind of lack significance to it, I guess. But imagine uh, you are running the London Marathon today or something like that, and you're given a medal afterwards. That's got a significance to it, hasn't it? It means something. Or imagine it's a school assembly and you've won the long jump. Maybe look back to your glory days. And uh, did anyone get given a medal in a school assembly and you get called up congratulations, and this gets put over your, your neck. That would have a significance to it. It was just a little bit of metal, uh, probably not actual silver or anything like that, uh, but there's a significance to that. It's, it's symbolic. And that is really what's going on when we have the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, they're just water, just bread, just wine, and yet in a particular context... Uh, surrounded with words, giving it meaning, they become very significant. So baptism, uh, when we get wet, I mean, I guess a number of us got wet on the way here uh, as it was raining. Uh, the other day, uh, as I was about to, to leave the house, I just realized the shower was still sort of dripping. So I put my arm in and it all came down. I got absolutely soaking wet. Um, was I being baptized? Was there anything significant? No, I was just getting wet. And yet, when I look back to the 1st of August, 1976, uh, that was the day, I wasn't really aware of this at the time, I was about four months old, uh, but I was baptized. Water was put on me in the context of a Christian gathering, and that was of enormous significance. Now, why does... Jesus do this? Why, why does he give us uh, these signs? I wonder whether it's because, you know, he realizes we're, we're embodied people. We're not just brains. We're made of stuff, of flesh and blood. And so perhaps it's not surprising that God should seek to speak to us, seek to encourage us, not simply through, simply through written words, although he does that, of course, but through the stuff of this world as well, through water, bread, and wine. Stuff that, when taken in a certain context, with words to give them meaning, are invested with a significance that encourages us. So, uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, they've been described as signs, uh, signs and seals, actually. So, the Westminster Confession of faith describes baptism and the Lord's Supper as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Uh, Thomas Cramner, 
who we keep referring to in this. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the Reformation and uh, was really foundational in a lot of the liturgy that we have now in the Church of England. He said this, Our Saviour Christ, knowing us to be, as it were, babes and weaklings in faith, has ordained signs and tokens for our sense to allure and to draw us to more strength and more constant faith in him. I suspect we need the Lord's Supper and baptism more than we realize we do. One, one of the challenges I think the evangelical church has had uh, is to be a, a little bit wary, and understandably so, a little bit wary at times of baptism and the Lord's Supper, of these signs. Uh, there is often an instinctive dislike for sort of a formalism, uh, a fear of getting too ritualistic or legalistic uh, in these things. Uh, there is a desire, quite rightly, to avoid sort of empty signs. Um, but the danger is that we can sort of hollow out what's actually going on in baptism and the Lord's Supper as a, as a, as a, in our desire to avoid uh, the ways in which sometimes we've seen it go wrong. So we emphasize how, look, there's nothing magical going on. There's nothing magical in the water of baptism. Uh, nothing particularly special in the wine and the bread. And that can mean that we can miss out, actually, uh, what's going on. Now, I want to just emphasize, uh, there is a real sense in which it is true that the Lord's Supper and baptism can go wrong and has gone wrong in the life of the church. Uh, in baptism, for example, when Christians believe that the simple act of being baptized, irrespective of someone's faith, will save them. Uh, that is a problem. That is this sign going wrong. Uh, with the Lord's Supper, uh, you might be very aware that back in the time of the Reformation, uh, there was a huge fight over what was happening at the Lord's Supper. And um, Protestant churches, Reformed churches, uh, said that the Roman Catholic Church were wrong in their understanding of what's happening in the Lord's Supper. Uh, something called transubstantiation. I don't know if you come across that. Um, transubstantiation. That is the idea... Uh, still formally taught, actually, in the Roman Catholic Church, the idea that whilst the outward appearance of the bread and wine remain the same, its inner essence, its substance, has changed to be the body of Christ. Uh, that's been one of the ways in which the Reformed Church has said, that that's wrong, that's not what the Bible is saying about uh, the Lord's Supper. And, and linked to that, and linked to what I just said about baptism, um, there is formally in Roman Catholic teaching the belief that the sacraments convey God's grace, and here's a technical phrase, it's up on the screen, ex opera operate, uh, which simply means by the action of the act. So 
the outworking of that is irrespective of whether there is faith, it has an effect on the person. Irrespective of faith. Uh, it's a bit like taking medicine. You can believe the medicine will work or not work, uh, but it will do what it does because the medicine's in your body operating. And again, the Reformed Church has said that's not the case. There needs to be faith present. So that is why I think in many ways the Reformed Church and uh, evangelicals have been a little bit wary of the Lord's Supper and of baptism. But the danger is, as I say, this can go too far. Uh, Because God is giving us these signs, these symbols. They are invested with meaning. And when received by faith, they do something. They strengthen us. They strengthen our faith. Uh, The Puritan, Thomas Watson, described uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism as a visible sermon. Uh, They they enact the gospel. Uh, Andrew Wilson says this, the word is not just heard, but seen and felt and smelled and tasted. God takes something tangible, in other words, and material, water, bread, and wine, and in the right context, the gathered church, with words to explain what's going on, received by faith, something significant's happening. That's building us up. So science can be really significant, and Jesus in his infinite wisdom has given us bread and wine and water to shape us and strengthen us. And just a few very quick things before we move on to baptism, just a note about it. They're corporate activities. You can't do baptism or the Lord's Supper on your own. There's something we have to do together with others. Uh, baptism is really emphasizing, uh, captures our sort of our union with Christ. Lord's Supper, our communion with him. Baptism, of course, is a one-off event. The Lord's Supper is something that we do regularly. And I think one of the most important things to understand about these signs is that they're not primarily about us. Sometimes we can think of them as sort of, you know, particularly perhaps in our baptism or or even when we take the Lord's Supper, that primarily this is about us declaring our trust and faith in Christ. It is that. But primarily, it's about God declaring the truths of the gospel to us. That is primarily what's going on. That's what signs do, don't they? Signs point us towards something else. They don't sort of point towards themselves. And finally, just to to mention uh, this word seals uh, that the Westminster Confession mentioned. Why why call it a sign and a seal? Uh, You know what a seal was? Back in the day, you'd have your splodge of um, wax and then you would have your imprint put on it to show this is authentic, like a signature. And in many ways, that is what baptism and the Lord's Supper are. It's like God's signature under the gospel. uh, Physical, tangible signature for us, a seal for us, an assurance of the truth of the gospel. Okay, that's just some 
uh, thoughts on signs and seals and uh, the significance of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let's just dig in a little bit deeper specifically about baptism and then specifically about the Lord's Supper. Now, one thing I'm not going to do today is uh, to go into the debate over whether or not it's right for children of believers to be baptized uh, or whether we should wait till children are old enough to make their own profession. Uh, That is a big debate that's been running for hundreds of years in the church. Uh, This church, we are an Anglican church. Uh, We do believe it's right and good um, to baptize the children of believers, uh, which is why we do it, and we joyfully do so. But we are very, very aware that not everyone here will share those convictions, and we totally understand that. And we totally respect that. Which is why we also take great delight in services of thanksgiving, of dedicating dedicating, uh, babies for those who would prefer that. I certainly don't think it's something that should divide Christians. I certainly don't want it to divide us as a church, which is why we take great joy in doing both. That's not to say it's not an important debate and an important discussion. It is. And it's one that we can... Uh, spend lots of time, and I'd very happily chat about uh, with you. And some of the things which I'm going to say now might help us think it through a little bit in our own minds. So uh, let's just think of a little bit about what baptism is all about. There's so much that could be said. Uh, there is loads of symbolism in it. It's very rich. It speaks of our cleansing. It speaks of new life. But for, for now, I just want to focus on one particular aspect of baptism. And to do that, I just want to take us through a little journey of water in the Bible. Uh, The place that water has in the Bible. And you can see on your handout just some uh, quick touch points on there. So this is going to be very, very uh, whistle-stop. But it's worth recognizing water in the Bible often represents judgment. It often represents the judgment of God. So we see that right back in Noah's day. Noah and his family, they are saved from the flood, the flood waters that came down that brought judgment on the world. It was kind of an act of decreation. Uh, everything going back to as it was right at the, the beginning. So water there as an act of judgment. And then you skip on to Moses and the people of Israel. And as they left is, is, uh, Egypt, you remember that story, what happened? They came to the Red Sea, and the Red Sea parted. The waters were pushed apart by the wind, God, the wind of God, the, God's breath, as it were, parting the, wind, uh, the, the, the uh, water. And through came the people of Israel, out the other side. And then what happened? The Egyptian army came in, and they were judged, and the waters fell on them and came crashing down on them. Then uh, we see uh, what happened to Joshua. Uh, Fast forward. And uh, when Joshua was on the verge of the promised land, they had to get across a river again. They had to get across waters again to get in. And uh, uh, what happened there was that the river Jordan was dried up. God held back the river Jordan. So Uh, Joshua chapter 4, verse 23. The Lord God, the Lord your God, dried up the Jordan 
before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. And so there's a real sense here in which God's people are being, again, reborn, going through the Jordan into the promised land. And then the River Jordan is significant again when we fast forward to the beginning of the New Testament. And who's there? John the Baptist. And here's John the Baptist, and he's going around uh, baptizing people with, uh, and calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And interestingly, at this time, the people who were being baptized generally were particularly the Gentiles. Because, of course, at that stage, it wasn't the Gentiles who had come through the water. The people of Israel, the ancestors of Israel, they'd come through the water of the Red Sea and the River Jordan. And so it's kind of a way of Gentiles being brought into God's people. They had to reenact that by going through the water. But John the Baptist did it not just for the Gentiles, he did it for the Jews as well, recognizing that we all need forgiveness. And then, here's the really significant bit, then comes Jesus. And what does he do? He himself gets baptized. He goes into the River Jordan. So what's going on there? I think Tim Chester describes it really helpfully. He says this, Jesus steps into our mess, our wickedness, our judgment, and he identifies with us. It's a dramatic expression of intent. Jesus is symbolically engulfed by the waters of judgment. All those stories of the Old Testament that we've just been talking about were setting us up to understand this moment. Jesus identifies with his people and expresses his intent to take the judgment we deserve. Jesus is declaring, I'm with you. And Jesus, he actually spoke about uh, his baptism. He said to two of his disciples, who wanted an honored place next to him, he said, are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about his baptism? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about that time when he took on the sin of the world, on our sin, on his shoulders, and as it were, plunged down into the waters of judgment. That is what he was doing at the cross. He was being truly baptized in sin and judgment, completely covered over, buried, dying the death that we deserve. And then he passes through it because he rises again, as we were thinking about two weeks ago, of course, with Easter, bringing new life. And so it's with all that in mind that we need to understand what happens when we are being baptized. What is going on? What is being said when we are baptized? Whether we have been baptized as adults through full immersion or sprinkled with water as babies or children, what it's saying is that through faith in Christ, we are like Noah, we are like Moses, we are like Joshua, we are like God's people who have passed through the water of judgment and out the other side. That is the declaration that God is making, that through faith in Christ, we have come through the waters of judgment and out the other side. And that is to encourage us 1 Peter 3 puts it like this. He says, Long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, 
In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolized baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The point being this, just as Noah was saved through the waters of judgment, so too are we as we're united in Christ through faith. Which is why we must remember it. We must remember our baptism. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, he was really having a difficult time in his life when he was at... uh, Hiding from persecution uh, against the church, he was in a castle, Uh, he was being labelled a heretic, he struggled with doubt, he struggled with discouragement. And one of the ways of coping was as he walked around the castle grounds, he said this, I would say my best Latin, uh, baptizatus sum. I am, I am baptized. I am baptized. That's what he would declare to himself. What was he doing there? Why was he saying that? He was recognizing that in his baptism, that it spoke of God's promise to save him from judgment. That through Christ, he's gone through the waters of judgment and out the other side to new life. That in Christ he is forgiven, he is saved. And so that's something that we need to do as well. We need to say to us, if we're baptised, if we're following Christ, we can look back to our baptism, whether it's when we were a baby or just a few weeks ago, and know what is true for us through faith in Christ. That Christ has gone through that judgment for us. So, baptism, that's baptism. Let's uh, just uh, quickly look at the Lord's Supper as well before we uh, share this meal together. Uh, Again, a very quick overview of meals in the Bible. I mean, meals are all over Scripture. Um, Genesis 2, verse 16, right at the beginning, the Garden of Eden, uh, Jesus, uh, God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from every tree on the garden. What an amazing menu he gave to Adam and Eve. You can have from anything. But we know the story. Humanity opted for an alternative menu. They ate from the one tree they were not supposed to. Uh, Fast forward then to the Passover. And uh, on the night God rescued Israel from Egypt, he gave them a meal, didn't he? The Passover meal, Exodus 12. And then as he took them through uh, the wilderness towards the promised land, they were grumbling for lack of food, and he gave them, what, manna and quail, Exodus 16. Uh, When they came to Mount Sinai, and they established their covenant relationship with God, uh, what happened there? We read about how the elders uh, met with God, and what did they do? They ate and drank with him. Uh, When God's people were taking the promised land, how was it described? It was described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Then they were disobedient. And uh, what happened to them? Well, there was famine. Uh, We can read the book of Joel to describe that, and the locusts. But God promised a great future for his people. 
And uh, we can read about this in Isaiah 25. Uh, this great future, how is it described? It's described as a feast. Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. New creation described as a feast. And then when Jesus came, how did Jesus come? Well, he's described as coming, Luke 7, verse 34, eating and drinking. Uh, someone described Jesus in Luke's gospel as either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He's all, food's just everywhere in the gospels. He fed 5,000. He shared his last supper with his disciples, and he turned that into the Lord's Supper. And then he said, as we've been looking in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, keep doing this. Keep doing this. And finally, he gives that invitation to everyone, Revelation 3, that wonderful invitation. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And so what we do, actually, when we share the Lord's Supper is we become part of this story. We become this part of the story of what it means to know and have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. We enter the story, we become characters in the drama every time we meet around the communion table. We become participants. And there's a sense in which Jesus is the host. I mean, it's lovely being hosted for a meal, isn't it? Being cooked for. Isn't that a wonderful thing, to be cooked for? And this is just a little sign. This is Jesus giving us a meal for our encouragement. And what happens when we uh, share this together? Well, uh, we do a number of things. We look back, we look in, we look up, we look around and we look forward. We look back, we look back at Jesus' death for us, his body broken, his blood shed. Uh, we are to look in. As we share the Lord's Supper, we're called to examine ourselves. We're not to eat it in an unworthy manner. It's actually one of the reasons why churches often do the peace um, as you have a communion meal, where you uh, share a sign of peace with one another. Because if we're not reconciled with one another, we don't want to come to the table. We want to get reconciled first. Uh, we're to look up. Uh, to see Jesus there by his spirit. And with that, that there, is, there is a sort of question uh, that's been running through church history that I referred to earlier about, you know, where is God present in the Lord's Supper? And uh, the Roman Catholic view is that one of transubstantiation. Uh, Luther came up with the idea of consubstantiation, that he's sort of in and under the bread. Um, there's not a lot of Merit in that, I don't think. Uh, Zwingli spoke about remembrance, that what we're doing as we share the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what's called the memorialist view. And I think there's something in that. Uh, this is an act of remembrance. It is a looking back to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But I think it's more than that. And that's where Calvin takes us to the idea of a spiritual presence. That as we take bread and wine, there is a very real sense in which 
Jesus is spiritually present. And there is a sense in which through these elements, these tangible things, he is embracing us and giving us a physical sign of his presence. Just as true as bread and wine is here, so too it's true that Jesus Christ is here with us. And so we look up, we commune with him. We also, we look around, we commune with one another, don't we? Uh, We share one loaf together. Uh, It's a wonderful declaration of church unity. Communion with God, yes, communion with one another uh, too. And then finally, we look forward. Uh, Look forward to that time where we will eat, that time that Isaiah 25 speaks of, to the new creation. We're doing all those things as we share bread and wine together. So here are these visible words, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We need them more than perhaps we realise. They are a great gift to us. And I want to just close as we uh, come to prepare to take bread and wine together by uh, reading something that I think is beautifully expressed um, uh, by Tim Chester. Tim Chester's written a really helpful book on, on these things. And uh, he points to uh, someone called R.C. Sproul. You might have come across him. He's a theologian, a writer. And he wrote a very uh, moving uh, blog post after his wife died. And uh, it's titled this, Husbands, Hold Your Wife's Hand. And, and he wrote this as a reflection of... Uh, his grief and his bereavement. Let me just first read R.C. Sproul, and then we'll see what Tim Chester does with it. But R.C. Sproul said this. It will come up on the screens. In fact, you've got it on your, your sheets. My deepest regrets, R.C. Sproul says, is that I did not hold her hand more. It's not, of course, that I never held her hand. It's likely, however, that I didn't as often as she would have liked. Holding her hand communicates to her in a simple yet profound way that we're connected Taking her hand tells her, I'm grateful that we're one flesh. Taking her hands tells me, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It is a liturgy, an extraordinary habit of remembrance, to see more clearly the extraordinary reality of two being made one. It would have, even in the midst of a disagreement or moments of struggle, communicate, we're going through this together. I will not let go. You can see where Tim Chester might use this. That, that simple act, that physical act, say in a marriage, expressing love, expressing commitment to one another, just holding one another's hand, tangible way of expressing that love. Of course you need words uh, to give meaning to that, but there is such significance in that. And what Tim Chester says is a bit like hand-holding is to a marriage relationship. So the Lord's Supper is to our relationship with Christ. And so he rewrites uh, R.C. Sproul's post with the Lord's Supper, communion in mind. And he says this, My deepest regret is that I have not partaken of communion more, or rather that I have not given it the significance it deserves. It's not, of course, that I never take communion. It is likely, however, that I don't as often as Christ would like me to. Communion communicates in a simple yet profound way that we're connected. In communion, Christ tells me, I am glad that we're one flesh. 
In communion, Christ says to me, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It is a liturgy, an ordinary habit of remembrance by which I see more clearly the extraordinary reality of two being made one. It is a means by which, even in the midst of a disagreement or moments of struggle, Christ communicates to me. We're going to go through this together. I will not let go. Well, we're going to do that uh, together now. We're going to share bread and wine. And uh, I'm going to hand over to to Simon, uh, who's going to lead us through that.